Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 14. The book of Romans is our course of study. We've been working on it in the morning uh, since January. And uh, I expect we're going to finish it sometime just a little after Thanksgiving. We're trying to get the whole message of the book and see how it addresses our lives. And so we take passage by passage and work through it. But we want to remember the theme because Romans is actually a letter written by Paul to a church, the church in Rome, uh, his contemporaries. And so a letter sort of has a main idea, and they would have read it perhaps all at one time, and so they would have heard that big picture and how the details fit in. And We need to do the same. So let's keep in mind that theme. The theme is mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In it, a righteousness is revealed apart from the law, separate from the law. And it, it tells us that the righteous will live by faith. That is to say that, that God has made known a way to be righteous, to, be, to receive as a gift righteousness, rather than to act and perform it, to accomplish it by acts of morality, of, of law-keeping. But rather, we're righteous because God clothes us with righteousness. Puts it on. But because God puts on that righteousness, because of the life of Jesus and the death of Him, of Christ and, and of His resurrection, because He clothes you in righteousness, He sends His Spirit to produce that righteousness in your heart. So that the righteousness would be thorough. Not just the clothing on the surface, but one that penetrates to every part of you. It would begin to shape the way you act, the way you speak, the way you think, down to the affections and the emotions that all of you would reflect the righteousness with which He has covered you. That's the message of the first 11 chapters of Romans. That God by His mercy is making you thoroughly righteous. In chapter 12 in the first verse, He says, in view of that mercy, of all those mercies that God is showing you in response to our fallenness and our brokenness, let me tell you how to respond. In view of those mercies, offer your whole body, your whole person as a living sacrifice. It's the only thing that makes sense. And then he begins to explain what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You ought, you're going to want to share your talents and your gifts as you live as one in the church. You're going to Love people who are around you and live in harmony with those around you in the church and outside it, as much as it depends on you. You're going to recognize the authority of God and all the authorities over you and be willing to submit to them because God has shown you mercy and you respond to that mercy by trusting His rule in the universe. And then, how do we show and live out mercy in the church among people when, quite frankly, sometimes we disagree? How do we disagree in the church. That's what Romans 14 tells us. It's an eminently practical and it's a way for us to love one another when we are very different. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together and ask His blessing on it. Father in Heaven, You have been magnificent and beautiful in the way You have put together Your church like stone upon stone into a magnificent and glorious building 
and it fits together wonderfully, but you haven't brought us together to be identical. You've made us different, and your artistry in us is good. We want to be able to live together when we're different, to have the humility to recognize other people as as significant as our own self, to be able to enjoy each other's differences rather than to want to fix them. We pray that you would help us see how you are at work in the church, that we might trust you and live together in view of your mercies well. We pray for you to take the scriptures today and feed and nourish your people that we might respond faithfully to Jesus and honor him with obedience. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both, of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is God's word. It's completely true and is utterly trustworthy. You might have noticed uh, that Thursday was Halloween. It was, seemed to show up on you know, every corner of our culture. It's become the, the second largest, as far as uh, economic impact, uh, holiday in our culture. It's uh, second to Christmas. I was flipping through on a few of the websites that have people who sort of ask and think theological questions and write their posts. And I like to read a few of those a week to help stimulate thinking in my own thought. And uh, it was interesting that on those places, I saw probably five or six articles on why Christians should not participate in Halloween. And of course, you might know some of the arguments. The arguments were things like Halloween has um, some pagan origins that the dressing up of, of ghoulish characters was at one time uh, a way to let these pagans participate in, in worship of, of 
dead, of the dead and of, of the powers of nature. And, and so it has a, a, a really anti-Christian origin. And for Christians to do that now is, is, is a bad idea. Okay, that's, that's one thing. I saw four or five or six of those articles. I also saw uh, four or five or six articles on why Christians should participate in Halloween. That, that uh, sure, it may have some origins that are associated with evil, but none of you are dressing up your kids with the sense that we're celebrating evil. In fact, it's just pretend. It's play. It's something that your kids might do if they're little on you know, any given Tuesday. That is, they like to put on costumes just because it's fun and candy is also fun. Let's add that the fact that uh, this is the one holiday that you can go knock on your neighbor's door for no reason and they will just say, Hi. Most of the time they'll say, What do you want? And they're a little suspicious. Here they say, Come in. Come talk to me. I remember uh, going to a neighbor's house a few years ago and, and thinking, as my neighbor invited me in, this is the only time I've been in their house. And I do it every Halloween. Here I am getting an audience with a neighbor that I can't any other way. That's community building, and it's a good thing. It, it, re, it reflects Christianity. There's a redeeming aspect to this Halloween. And so it's right for Christians to participate. Have your light on. And I've got these two articles now. I'm looking at her, these 12 articles, as it were. One saying one and one saying the other. How do we disagree in the church? In the passage, he brings up two areas of disagreement in the Roman church. One group says, it's fine to eat meat. We know that meat might be sacrificed to idols in the market, but we're not doing that. Another group says, but won't it be a bad witness if we don't mind eating the meat that's been sacrificed to Artemis or to Zeus? I don't think it's a good witness. I think it hurts us. And so I have these two people who are arguing about whether or not we should eat meat in the church. Or holidays. Should we participate in the holidays? The Jews had Passover and, and the festivals that remembered the days in the wilderness. And that's part of the heritage of this church because Christianity was the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. And so it's right, they say, to remember those days, to protect them and to keep them as part of our traditions. And then another group in the church said, yeah, but those holidays were Jewish holidays Jesus is, those were shadows. We, we don't need those holidays anymore. Now we have Jesus. So we don't need to do the holidays. And so how do we disagree in the church? Today, we argue over Halloween. We might argue over uh, how to raise children. We might argue over political positions. We might have disagreements about these very important matters. How do we do it in the church? Now, we're not talking about issues on which God has spoken clearly. This passage does not address things like, is it okay to lie? It is not okay to lie. God has made it very clear. It is not okay to gossip. It is not okay to hold malice in your heart. Holding a grudge is never okay. This passage does not speak to matters on which God has spoken clearly. It speaks to those matters on which God has not spoken clearly. Clearly, matters where we are left to work out what it is like to be a Christian in the world, to live out our faith, like eating meat or 
what holidays you celebrate or whether you trick or treat. And we looked last week at one part, only one part, of how Paul, inspired by God, commands the churches to act on these matters of disagreement. And the first point is, you must welcome each other. Not to quarrel, not to welcome you so that I can fix you, so that I can get you to think like me, but to genuinely welcome and receive that brother or sister who does it differently. And he gives you a little diagnostic. How do you know if you're really welcoming someone? He says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Despise here means to treat as meaningless or to treat as insignificant. That is, if I look at the person whose opinion differs from mine, then, and I think they just don't know anything. They just don't matter. And I can treat them with condescension, then I'm not doing what Paul's commanding. I am despising them. And you know how easy that is to look at someone who disagrees, who holds to a, a, a political position different than your own, and you want to say, don't you see what that's going to do? And we feel superior intellectually or in other ways. We condescend and, and we don't receive. The other diagnostic he gives in the same verse, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. If you feel condemning, if you like to evaluate other people's behavior, if you like to analyze and then you begin to feel morally superior to another person in the church, you haven't been practicing what Paul's called you to. That's your first clue. Welcome one another. And he gives you a reason. This isn't your servant. This neighbor belongs to Jesus, not you. And so you can let Jesus deal with this. If God welcomes him, you ought to. If Jesus is able to make him stand, you ought to let him stand before Jesus. Now, the problem with that statement is sometimes the Bible tells us to get involved. In Matthew 18, it says this, If a brother sins against you, go to him and tell him of his sin. In Galatians 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So we're called to get involved. But again, that's what I was saying before. This passage isn't about how do we handle gossip or uh, resentment or uh, lying or theft or adultery, or, or any of those things. It's not about the places where God has said, this is how you're to live. It's about the places we're trying to work out what it means to be faithful in life and where God hasn't spoken clearly. I want you to see the two other things that, the, that Paul commands for his church. The first one, if the, if the very first point is, Here's how you're to interact with each other, welcome and receive. Now he says, here's how I want you to think about in your own life the things that create disagreement in the church. In verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one 
should be fully convinced in his own mind. He says, you take the issue about which there is disagreement and think about it. Work it out in your own mind. Christianity is not a passive way of life. It is a way in which we are called to think and to think biblically. This means we bring the issue that's creating disagreements. We've used Halloween. We could use uh, whatever else we want, how to raise children or, or politics. We bring that issue to the Scriptures and we say, do the Scriptures have something to say? I'm not going to just assume that what I'm doing is okay. I want to investigate. I want to think about it. I want to hear the arguments. I want to hear the very, very best argument for the side that differs from me. And I want to hear the best argument from those who agree with me. And I, I want to evaluate them and become convinced in my own mind about the way I ought to live before God. I want to think about it and examine it. And I think a lot of us don't do that. Uh, it's very easy for us to say, well, this is just how we've always done it. How we've always done it in the church. How we've always done it in the family. How we've always done things. Why mess with it? But the Scriptures say become convinced in your mind that what you're doing is what the Lord loves, is what would be good and faithful. Become convinced. If you eat, know that you're doing it to the pleasure and glory of God. And if you don't eat, don't eat because you know that God takes delight in that. There's a, an old story they tell it like uh, sort of corporations and stuff. When, when they tell business guys, don't just do what the business is always doing, think it through. The story is of uh, an experiment done with, uh, it's probably legend, I don't know if it's even true, but it's a good story. The, it's a story of, of monkeys in captivity. And they set up on a ramp something the monkeys want, like bananas or fruit or something. And so the monkeys would see it, and one would start going to claim it, and as they got on the ramp to walk up to it, they would spray the monkey with water and keep it from going up. It wouldn't hurt, but it would discourage it. And so the monkeys would learn that every time you went up there, they would spray it. Well, they, they took the monkeys who'd learned, and they took one of them out and put a new one in. And the monkey, of course, is new, sees the thing it wants and starts to go over, and the other monkeys stop it and protect it from going up, which seems like a good thing. And then they take another one out and put another one in, and they do the same thing. And they keep doing that until all the monkeys have been replaced, and every monkey that's in captivity now has never seen the water come out. And when the, monk, the new monkey tries to go up, they all stop it. They don't know why. They just know that's what you do. You, you look at that and you go, well, what's that have to do with anything? Well, Paul here is saying, don't be passive in the way you live your life. Don't do things just because it's what's been done. Do things because they make sense. Do things because you say, I'm working this out in my life about how to be faithful before God. I'm thinking this through and examining it with the Scriptures and with thinking. Here's the diagnostic. Are you doing this? Are you asking questions like this? Why do I do this? Why do I go to Sunday school? Why do I discipline my children the way I do? Why do I have people over at my house or not have people over at my house? Why do I educate my children the way I do? Why do I read the Bible in the morning 
Or, if you read it in the evening, why in the evening? Ask these questions. Why do I do what I do? It's an important question to ask. Because God calls us to be convinced in our mind. And here's what that really says. On these matters in which there's disagreement, God appears, certainly in this passage, to be less concerned with the result of our thinking than that we're thinking about whether or not we're being faithful to Him. He's more concerned about whether or not we're trying to live as disciples than the particulars about how we work it out. How do you spend your money? Why do I spend my money this way? Am I have biblical thinking? Am I living? Am I using my money thinking about God? God is more concerned with that you're you're thinking about Him as you spend than the particular things you spend on. Be convinced in your own mind that what you're doing honors the Lord. The third thing is that you want to live your life entirely for God. That every part of your life gets lived before God. Listen to the things that he says. Verse 6, The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord, and gives thanks to God. He's saying, take everything that you do, and make it an honor to God. The one who eats his meat, it says he eats it with an eye to the honor of God. Had a an acquaintance who lived in uh, Colorado in the sort of New Age capital of the world back in the 90s. It was everybody was New Age. All the bookstores had you know crystals and all kinds of stuff hanging around. And he bought a, a necklace with a crystal on it. He was a Christian. And when people would see him, they'd be like, oh, are you into New Age like us? And he'd be like, New Age, what's that? Are you talking about this rock? Let me tell you about who made the rock. He said, I'm going to wear this rock to the glory of God. I'm going to dress to the glory of God. Now, that's a good issue. How do we dress in the church? It's a question that pastors get asked all the time. There was a new church that started in Cookville, Tennessee, And they would send out advertisements and it had a picture of jeans and said, it's okay to wear jeans. And when they asked people who came, they said, that's the reason we came, because we knew we could comfortably wear jeans. Should you wear jeans to church? What does the Bible say about clothes? It says two things, really, in the New Testament. It says, dress modestly. Now, modesty certainly has something to do with, uh, quite frankly, how much is exposed, but that's not it. Modesty is really an issue of the heart. And the question is, do I wear my clothes to attract attention or do I wear my clothes to fit into the community so that I don't make people look at me? In fact, even if you're wearing clothes that would be judged modest by most people, if your thought in the morning is, what are people going to think of my clothes? Probably it's not modest. Even if by some other definition it is. Because the issue is, am I trying to attract attention? The Bible says... Dressed modestly. It also says in James, if a wealthy man comes in and he's dressed great, and another man comes in and he is dressed poorly, do you make him sit on the floor while you honor the wealthy? Do you take the person who's dressed well and give them greater honor than the one who's dressed poorly? If you do, you aren't being like Jesus, James says. And so those are the two statements the Bible gives us on clothes in worship. 
Now, some of you are thinking it through. You're saying, I don't want to attract a ton of attention to myself, but I want to give the Lord my very best. And so I put on a suit. You might say, if I gave him my very, very best, I'd wear a tux with tails and the whole works. But then that wouldn't be modest. So you're trying to obey all of Scripture. You bring your best suit and you wear it because you say, the Lord deserves the very best I have to offer. That is good thinking. It is a healthy way to live. And you're saying, I'm thinking through what would God be pleased with. And here's what I think Romans says. God is pleased with you. When you work it out like that to His glory and honor, thinking through honestly. However, another person says, well, I've read the Scriptures and, and it tells me that I am made righteous just as I am. That I don't clean myself up first, but that God accepts me as I am. And if I put on the finery, that's not really who I am. I'm hiding. And so I'm going to wear the clothes that I wear because that's me saying I'm coming to God as I am. It's a way for me to, to work out the gospel in my life. And here's what I want to say. According to Romans 14, I think God is pleased with that. I think God says you're wearing the, the finery or you're wearing casual clothes to the honor of God. And you've thought it through, convinced in your own mind, and God is pleased because you're honoring Him. Here's the question, the first diagnostic. Are you welcoming one another? Do you despise or do you condemn? If you are, you're not welcoming. That's your diagnostic. The second is this. Do you think it through? Are you asking why questions about what you do? The third, live your life in honor to God. And here's how you'll know. You are constantly giving thanks to God. In verse 6, he says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor and gives thanks to God. Are you filled with thanksgiving? Because of the clothes God has given you to wear? Are you filled with thanksgiving because He allows you to think politically and choose the positions that you see to fit? Are you thankful to God that He has given you freedom to work out this salvation and His grace overwhelmed and He makes you stand, not you figuring out the right answers to all of these details? Are you thankful to God? Well, here's how you'll know. There's a, a, a story, it's an account, at the end of one of, uh, of David's life as king. He's recounting some great historical events, and particularly of the mighty men of valor. The, the ones who accomplished great things in, in victory and battle against God's enemies. And David is on the battlefield away from the front at the moment with his mighty men of valor and he longs for some water drawn from a well that the Philistines have captured. Well, a couple of his men say, if our king wants water, then let's give him water. And they fight through the front lines and they battle themselves to draw water from a well because David wanted it. And then they fight their way back without spilling it all the way back to David and they present to their great king the one to whom they have great devotion, and say, here's the water you wanted. Now, if you remember the story, David says, far be it from me, I'm not worthy of this water and what it costs you to get it. And he takes the water that they risked their lives to get, and he pours it out on the ground. And he says, only the Lord is worthy of this. 
can you, for the Lord's sake, fight the enemy? Can you, for the Lord's sake, work out what it means to follow Him and think it through? For the Lord's sake, because you are so enamored with this great King that you would fight the Philistines, that you would dip the water, that you would bring it back and offer it to Him to do with whatever He wants. Will you take your politics and offer it to Him and do with it whatever He wants? Will you, will you take your freedom and offer it to Him to do whatever He wants because your heart is so full of thanksgiving? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us see how great it is to have Jesus as a king and that it would fill our hearts with thanksgiving. That we could work out these things like clothes and parenting and politics and holidays and, and everything else in a way that has our eye always toward you because your mercies extend to every part of our life. And we want to eat and drink and rest and work all to your honor and glory. We pray you would help us with that. That you would forgive us our sins, the places where we despise and condemn, the places where we do things passively without sensing whether it matters to you, the places where we do things for our own honor instead of yours. Would you forgive us because of your great mercies and change us for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.